Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. I'm so grateful for our sung worship here uh, each week because it so wonderfully and effectively helps me week in and week out uh, to have, I think, a prepared posture to go to God in his word. And this week's no different. If you've been paying attention this morning, then we uh, ought to be well equipped to go to God in his word and receive his word. Uh, the, the, the songs we've been singing, these beautiful words, I think wonderfully lead us into our time in the scriptures this morning. Uh, one central question that I think we need to orient our time around this morning, and that is, where is God when the storms of life come our way? Where is God when our lives start to fall apart? When things get really hard, where is God? Where is God when we get the cancer diagnosis or when cancer starts to ravage our bodies? Where is God when uh, the, the housing situation that we just entered into blows up in our face, our Roommate is not what we thought they were going to be and things are going sideways. Where is God in that? Where is God when our finances fall apart? When the storms of life come, where is God? We're now moving into a section in the book of Genesis, largely dealing with the life of Joseph. And it's largely a section of scripture where God is silent. He's not speaking like he has formally. He's not showing up to Abraham in, like he did in Genesis 15 and making very clear statements about what is going to be happening in the days to come. And so with Joseph, as he endures the various trials that he faces and he, de- and he does so with a silent God, where is God in the midst of that? Where is God in the silence in your life? The good news this morning is that the Bible has answers for us when we wonder where God is. So our time in the word this morning, we're going to have two points from Genesis 39. A main point and a secondary point that sort of flows out of that first. And the first and main point is this. God is with us in prosperity and in hardship. God is with us in prosperity and in hardship. Things may seem hopeless and God may seem silent, but when we are in Christ, he is there with us. So we're going to scan this entire book or entire chapter of Genesis 39 and see this main point throughout. We won't read every single verse, but this is what we are going to see as we work our way through Genesis 39. And then second, flowing from this first point, we're going to see one of the very important and very real consequences of God being with us. And at this point, we're going to zoom in and take a focused look at the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So let's pray that the Lord would help us 
to see these things in the text and be built up as we do. Lord, we come to you humbly knowing that the only way that we can approach you is in the name of Jesus. We come empty-handed this morning. And Lord, uh, we come knowing that you desire to meet with us. And so we pray that you would. Help us now to receive your word. Would you take your word by the Spirit and apply it to our hearts to produce faith and to cause us to live for your renown. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, point one. God is with us in prosperity and in hardship. Read with me Genesis 39, verses 1 and 2. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. This is where we have to start when we consider Genesis 39. We start this morning with God. Before this is a story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife and a story about temptation and how to flee and resist temptation, this is a story about God and what God is doing. God is moving this whole thing along in the book of Genesis and he is redeeming a people to himself. And so we have to begin here, not with Joseph, but with God. And so where is God in Genesis 39? It's so abundantly clear right from the very beginning and all throughout Genesis 39, God is with Joseph. His presence rested upon Joseph. If you remember back a couple of weeks, the last time we saw Joseph, he had been left in a pit and then he was sold and taken off to Egypt. His prospects weren't good. This is not a pleasant thing to have happened to you. But here we pick back up and Joseph has been purchased by Potiphar, who was a very powerful man in Egypt. He's the captain of the guard. He's something like a general or or some sort of uh, chief executive officer in Egypt. So a very powerful, very uh, important person. And what does Genesis 39 want to tell us about what happens next? Well, God was with Joseph. In all of this, God was with him. And because God was with Joseph, something very important happened. Joseph prospered. The whole first paragraph here in Genesis 39, if you were to look in your Bibles, the whole first paragraph details the consequences of God's being with Joseph. And what are the consequences? God prospered Joseph. And so we can just work through the passage. Uh, Verse three, his master saw that he was with him and that the Lord caused him all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse four, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Verse five, from that time, he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Essentially, 
Joseph comes into Potiphar's house as a lowly slave, as a lowly servant, and before too long, because of God's presence, he advances and he advances and he advances and he gains more responsibility, more authority to the point where he really becomes a COO, a chief operating officer to Potiphar's CEO, chief executive officer. He's the second in command. He runs everything in Potiphar's house. And Genesis 39 makes it abundantly clear how this happened. Was it because Joseph was so wise and so smart and so shrewd? Well, Genesis tells us that he is those things. He is wise, he is smart, he is shrewd, but that's not why he was successful in Potiphar's house. Why was he successful? Everything is attributed to God. This is a story about God. God was with Joseph, and because he was with Joseph, he was successful. In this story, Genesis 39, Joseph experiences incredible blessing, incredible prosperity, and in the midst of it, God was with him. But this is short-lived. Right? I know many of us are familiar with the story of Genesis 39. And so we know that Joseph has a foil. He soon finds himself in the crosshairs of Potiphar's wife. She tempts Joseph. She desires that Joseph would come and sleep with her. But Joseph, being a man of integrity, stands firm and refuses her advances. And they keep coming, so eventually he has to flee so forcefully that it ends up forcing the issue with Potiphar's wife and she has to concoct a lie that essentially frames Joseph for sexual assault. And the wording that Potiphar's wife uses as she does this is so interesting and so conniving. Look at verse 14. She calls the men of her household in after Joseph flees and she says, see, he, Potiphar, my husband, he has brought amongst us a Hebrew to laugh at us. And then uh, down to verse 17, she says the same thing to her husband and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. I think what we're seeing in that laughing bit is a, is an idiom here, uh, essentially saying that he came in to abuse me, to sexually assault me, to humiliate me. And see, the thing here is, is that that would be bad enough. But instead of just merely leaving it at this servant came in to humiliate me through sexual assault, she actually plays on the racist and, and ethnocentric tendencies of the Egyptians and said, not only did he do that, but he is a foreigner. He is a Hebrew. And so this is to stir these people up. And not only that, but she implicates her husband and said, this is your fault. You brought not only a uh, uh, not very uh, integrous person in who would abuse me, but you brought in a foreigner who would do this to me as well. Well, Potiphar's lie does the trick. And in verse 19, Potiphar's wife's lie does the trick. And in verse 19, Potiphar's anger was kindled against Joseph. So he went and threw him in prison. And verse 20 puts it this way. He throws him in the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison. 
So Joseph goes from a place of incredible prominence. He's the COO of the organization. He's the overseer of everything in Potiphar's house except for the food. And now he has been cast down from Potiphar's house to a prison cell. This has to be so incredibly disheartening for Joseph. He was literally in a pit in the lowest of lows and he was sold and he goes to a not very much better situation, but he rises in the ranks. Prosperity comes his way. That has to feel good only for the rug to be pulled out from under him and him to find himself back in the proverbial pit once again. I can't imagine how disheartening that might be. But this is where Joseph is. Now notice something. There's something off about this story. As far as Potiphar and everybody in the household is concerned, Joseph, a foreigner, came in and sought to sexually abuse Potiphar's wife, the lady of the house, a very important person in her own right. And so what's the consequence for this crime? They throw him in prison. That that seemed a little off to you. We have documents, legal documents that tell us what the consequence for this sort of crime is. And it ain't prison, it's death. If you do this sort of thing in Egypt, then you get stoned. You die a horrible death. But Joseph was thrown into jail. And no mere jail, but the jail where the king's prisoners were kept. Do you see how a pathway might be forged here for something that would lead on to Joseph's future? What gives? Verse 21. But... The Lord, this is no mere general name for God. This is Yahweh, the covenant, self-sustaining, self-sufficient name of God. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the jailers. What gives is that the Lord of all, the great I am, the creator and sustainer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who promised to be with them and with their seed, that God is with Joseph. He was with Joseph in his prosperity in Potiphar's house, and now he is with Joseph in his hardship in a present cell. Joseph being cast from the presence of Potiphar doesn't mean that he was cast from the presence of God. No, God was with Joseph. He was with him, and because he was with him, he showed him his steadfast love, only to restore him once again. He showed him his hesed love. He showed him his his steadfast loving kindness. He showed him his covenant promise-keeping love. So what's, what's the point that we're seeing here? Some huge things are happening in Genesis 39. If we were to look at Genesis 39 with the wide angle lens at the most general level, God is moving salvation history forward. God is going to preserve himself a people and this story is a big part of that. We know the story of Joseph. We know he will eventually rise up and he will become the second in command in all of Egypt. And God is going to use him to preserve his people so that the Christ might eventually come from the line of Judah. So we have this 
big thing that's happening here where God is sovereignly advancing his kingdom purposes forward so that you and I might one day receive and experience salvation. But at the very same time, God isn't a puppet master in this story. Even as he advances the the big overarching narrative of the Bible forward, He is with Joseph in the details. He's intimately involved with Joseph. And because he is with him, he causes Joseph to prosper and be blessed. And because he is with him, he causes him to fall and experience hardship. Yet in all of this, God is with Joseph and never takes his presence away. I think this is really important for us to get for We are a people, we are a people who so often think that our circumstances determine whether or not we have the presence of God. We think that when things are going good, that God is with us, and when things are going bad, that God is no longer with us, but has left, he is far off. It makes me think of a time when I was in high school, when I was in high school, I used to go to a boxing gym and I loved it. It was some of the best exercise I've ever had in my life. Uh, I really just generally enjoy the environment. It was good to punch something like a punching bag really hard every once in a while to let off steam. I loved boxing at this boxing gym. And every once in a while, we would get to spar at this gym. Well, I will never forget the day that I sparred against Dan. Dan... Uh, was roughly the same size as me. And so one day he and I were the only people who were roughly the same size. And so we got partnered up to spar against one another. And I wasn't terribly concerned about this. Um, The gym was pretty much made up of people who looked like boxers. They all had cool clothes on. They had Under Armour and Nike cutoff shirts and they had mohawks and tattoos and the sorts of people that you just wouldn't want to get into a ring with or go anywhere with. I mean, they were, they were scary people. Dan, on the other hand, was really unassuming. He had kind of a, a goofy haircut. Uh, his clothing was really nondescript. Once again, unassuming. He liked reading comic books and watching movies. He was very different from the typical person in our boxing gym. So I got in feeling like, all right, this will, this, yeah, I'm not, I'm not terribly intimidated. So uh, I got in the, in the ring with him and I remember putting my hands up like right in front of my face and he does the same thing. The next thing you know, I see a flash of lightning <laughs> and my face explodes in pain. It felt like I got hit with a baseball bat. The hardest thing that I've ever felt up against my face. Well, this happens about three more times before I just can't go on. I am not seeing anything. So there was nothing in Dan's appearance to indicate it, but he was a two-time gold glove winning boxer (laughs) who never lost a competitive match in boxing. He was a bad man. (laughs) Now, I assumed that because Dan didn't act or dress like a typical athlete, that he wouldn't be that good of a boxer. Why is that a dumb assumption? Because those things 
have nothing to do with one another. They have nothing to do with one one another. I was taking a few pieces of evidence and coming up with a conclusion that did not flow from that evidence. And I share this because I think this is what we do when we allow our circumstances to say something about God's presence. We think that because things aren't going well, that God must have abandoned us. But where does that thought come from? It certainly doesn't come from scripture. What do the scriptures say? Jesus says that he is our Emmanuel, God with us. And he says that when he goes to the right hand of the father, that he will send his spirit and he will be with us. In Matthew 28, when he gives us the great commission, he says, go and make disciples and do all these things. And behold, I will be with you until the end of the age. We can keep going. Psalm uh, 34 says, God is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 27 says, in the day of trouble, he will hide us in his shelter. John 10, no one or no thing will snatch them out of my hand. We referred to Hebrews 13 earlier. God will never leave us nor forsake us. Romans 8, uh, what will separate us from the love of Christ, which is the presence of Christ? Shall danger or nakedness or persecution or sword? No, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. Why would we ever think that our circumstances, for those of us who are in Christ, would say anything about the presence of God when we have mountains of scriptural evidence that say no. In fact, it's often when we are feeling the most low that God's presence is the most dear. And so, what do we learn from a passage like Genesis 39, well, we can know that regardless of where we are, if we're in a really good spot or a bad spot, if we are in fact in Christ, then God is with us. And in his presence, his fullness of joy, his peace, his power, his hope. And so, Christian, are things going well? The fruit of your labor is is coming to harvest and you're experiencing good in your life right now? Are you enjoying relationships? Do things seem to be largely doing okay? Praise the Lord. Know this, if you are in Christ, that God is with you. And so cherish his presence. Seek to find Jesus as your chief treasure in this time. But Christian, are things not going well? Is this a hard season, a season of trial, of pain? Are your relational prospects drying up? Is your job coming to an end? Are the symptoms of depression coming back yet again? Is your anxiety becoming overwhelming? Are you experiencing the realities of living in a fallen world? Know this, if you are in Christ, those circumstances say nothing about God's presence. In Christ, God is with you. Your circumstances don't change that. If you are on the mountain or in the depth, 
a time of peace or a time of loss, if you are in Christ, then God is with you and all the benefits of his presence are yours. He will not abandon you to the pit. He will not leave you in your circumstances. He is with you. And so be encouraged by that this morning. This is the main thing we want to see from our passage. I think this is the main thing that we see happening in Genesis 39. God was with Joseph in the ups and downs. And so because he was with him, he was able to advance his kingdom, uh, his kingdom purposes forward. But that is certainly not all that is in this passage. There's a narrow lens through which we can see this passage that helps us to realize some of the benefits of God's powerful presence with us. And so second point this morning, God's presence means that we can resist temptation. God's presence means that we can resist temptation. Read with me verses 6 through 10. And let's zoom in now on the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything for me except you because you were his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. In this passage, we have absolutely zero indication that God's presence ever left Joseph. That This story is bookended with the Lord being with Joseph. In Genesis 2 and all the way up to 21, God is with Joseph. That's the consistent theme. And so nothing gives us any indication that here in the story of Joseph's temptation that God has somehow abandoned him. No, so the Lord was with Joseph in the midst of his temptation. And so these verses, they become wonderfully helpful for us because they show us one of the realities of God's powerful presence with us. It enables us to be a people who actually resist temptation, who actually say no to sin. Joseph models this for us. How was he able to say no to Potiphar's wife except the fact that God was with him and was planning on using him in a very specific way and so he empowered him to say no and to run? And so this passage helps us to understand a baseline gospel truth. We will struggle with sin. Our flesh will be weak. Nevertheless, even in our incompleteness, we can have victory amidst temptation. But these verses go a little bit further. Not only do they help us understand that we can resist, they also instruct us with some truths that might help us to resist. Lots of ways we can go with this passage. I want us to spend the rest of our time considering four truths about temptation and about sin that can help us to resist temptation. Four truths for the rest of our time that can help us resist temptation. 
Truth one, there is no substitute for character. There is no substitute for character. So Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. Uh, As best as I could tell, this uh, description doesn't show up for any other man in the Bible. Only Joseph is handsome in form and appearance according to the scriptures. And look what it got him. That's a little lesson in and of itself probably. It gets him to the place where Potiphar's wife wants him, becomes desirous of him. In, in our Bibles, it says that she said, lie with me. But really, it's probably a lot more forceful than that. And it's two words in Hebrew. Uh, and some commentators will say it's more like sex. Now, it's more of a command than it is an invitation. She propositions Joseph with two words. And Joseph, a man who is unbelievably silent here in Genesis 39, responds with 35 words. The man of few words in Genesis 39 cannot be quiet. He will not do this. And so what does he say in these 35 words? He says, he can't do this thing because of the power and the influence that have been entrusted to him by Potiphar. My master has put everything that he has in my charge, everything except you. How could I do this to him? What's remarkable about this is that Joseph, is essential, Joseph essentially says that I have been given much responsi- responsibility and power, so I can't do this. But for Lesser people than Joseph, these very same things become the rationale for why they can sin in this way. I have great power. I have great responsibility. So I can do as I please. Think of King David. He wanted Bathsheba. He had power. He had authority. He had the ability to be relatively anonymous. And so he took what he wanted And he slept with Bathsheba because he was king. Surely at some level, this sort of temptation also rested upon Joseph. My master has given me everything. It won't hurt to also take his wife. Not only that, but she can offer me probably even more power as she is a powerful person in and of herself and pleasure. Who doesn't want these things? Nevertheless, Joseph resisted. I think the difference here is that Joseph has made it a habit to resist such things. His character has been refined over a lifetime so that he thinks differently than most people when given power and access. Character isn't formed over days It isn't formed over weeks. It's formed over months and years and years. And if we desire to resist temptation, then we must be willing to do the very hard work of refining our characters today and tomorrow and the next day on into the future. We must consistently go to God in his word. We must consistently seek his face in prayer, consistently come together, confessing our sins, asking for help from one another. This sort of hard work is going to enable us to stand and resist temptation as it comes our way. Truth two, sin is sin. Sin 
is sin. After Joseph lays out that sleeping with Potiphar's wife would be a great sin against Potiphar, he lays out the true nature of this temptation. temptation. Verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? D.A. Carson comments on this passage and says that Joseph is able to resist sin because he is willing to call a spade a spade and a sin a sin. This isn't harmless fun that is being propositioned. This isn't an understandable slip up. This isn't a man simply trying to live out his sexuality and enjoy the good things of this life. This isn't Joseph seeking to get what is due him. Joseph is right. This is wickedness and this is sin and not mere wickedness and sin, but wickedness and sin against God. This seems like a forerunner to Psalm 51 where David's sin and he pours himself out and he says, against you, O God, and you alone have I sinned. David and Joseph alike were willing to acknowledge the, the bare truth of the matter that sin is sin. If we want to effectively fight against temptation, then we must develop a holy fear of the Lord. We must develop a reverence and an awe at the maker of all the one who holds us together the one who sustains all things we have to be be overwhelmed by that God and then and only then are we going to understand the offense of sin rightly sin is not a misstep it's not a foible it's not an oopsie it's not something we rationalize or explain away it is elevating the self over the creator it's choosing our way and acting out of step with creation and purpose it's an offense to our creator and sustainer God of course we must be gracious with ourselves and with others we know that God's grace covers a multitude of sin. Nevertheless, we must be radically candid when it comes to the reality of sin. Friends, let us call sin what it is and refuse to explain it away. And as we do so, let us then, with God's help, seek to run from sin with everything that we have. Truth three. Truth three. Temptation is not easily conquered. Temptation is not easily conquered. I wish that temptation was easily conquered. Potiphar's wife gives her two-word proposition. Joseph responds with his beautiful 35-word, I ain't doing it. Then what? Does Potiphar say, I appreciate your reasoning and I am grateful that you considered my request, but ultimately said, no, I will now move on to other prospects. Say, I respect your decision and I will no longer pester you about the matter. No, no. Potiphar's wife spoke to him day after day after day. And this is bad news. I wish I could tell you that if you resist sin today, then it will not come back at you tomorrow. But the reality is, is that just because we have resolved for a moment doesn't mean that that same sin won't attack us 10 minutes later and we won't be tempted to sin with the lack of resolve 10 minutes later. 
I found myself so proud at being able to resist pride, to be able to resist anger and lust and, and every other sin imaginable, only, only to crash in a remarkable way the very next day, the very next moment. It's unbelievable. We have to arm ourselves with the fact that we are in a constant battle. This isn't peacetime. No wonder Paul urges us to put on the whole armor of God. This is to be a continual thing. We are to put on the armor of God and equip ourselves with this armor so that we can extinguish the fiery darts that are fired at us. So know this, temptation will not go away. In this life, we will, we will experience great pain and agony as we seek to battle against the flesh. It's going to be around until Christ calls us home or until he returns. We have to now equip ourselves with the necessary tools and armor so that we can resist. And so I urge you, engage this battle armored up. Finally, truth four, it may get worse. It may get worse. Joseph effectively resists temptation. What happens? Potiphar, Potiphar's wife throws herself at Joseph. He stands firm. He declares that he will not do this. He effectively flees temptation. Does Potiphar come along and say, thank you for your honor. Thank you for your integrity and in not taking advantage of my wife. No. For Joseph's fleeing of sin and for his honoring of Potiphar, he is thrown into prison. Sometimes in this life, we might have moments of respite where after we resist temptation, we are able to bask in that. We might have people see our faithfulness and they may acknowledge that and they may, that may be encouraging. But Sometimes we will have to be content that our God in heaven sees us and he sees our faithful flight because our resisting temptation today does not promise that things are going to get better tomorrow. In fact, oftentimes things get worse. Joseph had to have known what resisting temptation might cost him. But as D.A. Carson says, again, he valued his purity over his prospects. And so he was willing to submit himself to God, even if it cost him everything. If we can get these truths in our heads and in our hearts, I think we'll be better equipped to engage the battle and to resist temptation. God is with us. And so we can do this. He has enabled it. And so it's good for us to arm ourselves with good tools so that we may engage the battle well. Nevertheless, nevertheless, if we're honest, there is no way that these truths alone are going to ensure that we live a perfectly holy and pleasing life unto the Lord. It's just not going to happen. And so I think it's so incredibly appropriate that this morning we gather together around the table. It's good and it's right for us to store up truths that will help us to resist temptation. It's right for us to fight sin with every ounce of our strength. Still, 
No matter how hard we fight, we will never be without sin. We will commit acts of wickedness towards our God. Our, our character will falter. We will succeed for a time only to fall prey to sin. A moment later, we will relapse. We will be devoured by the constant barrage of temptation that comes our way. But Jesus died for you. Jesus died for us. Jesus resisted temptation perfectly. He never slipped up. He never got beaten down by temptation. He continually entrusted himself to his father. And so he is the uniquely qualified one who can go to the cross in our place and take our sins upon his shoulders and pay the penalty of that sin. As 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. See, Joseph was an exemplar of faith, and that's great. But he was a forerunner to Jesus, the righteous one, who would come and who would stand in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. In just a moment, we're going to take the bread and the cup. And as we do, we're going to remember that Jesus lived and died in our place, that he bore our sins upon the cursed tree and because of his wounds, we are healed. We're going to remember him and we are going to proclaim his death, proclaim his majesty, proclaim his might, proclaim his grace, that Jesus Christ saves sinners. And so as we gather to remember and proclaim Christ's death, let us come and let us take this tangible reminder of his grace extended to us and let it produce life in us. Let it be a reminder that God is with us. Let it encourage our faith today as we feast. I'm gonna invite the servers to come forward and go ahead and grab the bread and the cup and find your stations. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray and invite you to come forward and we're not going to uh, ask you in any specific way. We're just going to pray and then you can come as you're ready. A couple things. There'll be different stations uh, and you can gather to these various stations. Uh, at your far left is a station that is going to have uh, uh, an option for you if you have food allergies. Uh, you'll come to the front. You'll go to the bread and the person with the bread will say, Christ's body was given for you. You'll take the bread dip it in the cup and the, the next server will say, Christ's blood was shed for you. And I urge you to come, drink and eat, and remember Christ and proclaim Christ and be fed as you do so. But one important thing to know about this, if you uh, are not a believer, if you're here visiting today and you're not a believer, thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming and, and experiencing all this stuff with us. We're so glad that you're here. This meal is a family meal. This is one of the very few things in the church that is limited to believers. And so we ask that you would not partake today. But instead, consider the things that we've talked about. Consider the fact that God is with us in Christ and that your sins too can be forgiven in Christ by grace through faith. If you want to know more about that, we'd love to talk to you. 
If you are a believer though, then know that the table is open. We do ask that you would examine yourself though and consider if you have ongoing unrepentant sin, if you need to make something right with the Lord or with another who you might have sinned against. Let us not eat and drink condemnation upon us, but rather come enjoying and experiencing God's good gift to us. Let's pray and we'll take of the bread and the cup. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, we know that we have God with us. That by your spirit, we have life and light. We can experience peace and joy today and nothing can take this away from us. So what I pray that your presence would be powerful and real to us today. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that because of him and your presence now, we can resist temptation. That we have been freed from the bondage of sin. And so Lord, help us to fight. Not because we uh, need to earn your favor or your righteousness, but because we desire to please you and bring glory and honor to your name. And so Lord, would you equip us with good tools constantly reminding us that when we fall, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, our Savior. And so, Lord, let us eat and drink and be built up. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen.